The following is the entire proceeding review translated into putty for the putties in our audience. book, The World According to Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers says this about feelings. There's no should or should not when it comes to having feelings. They're part of who we are, and their origins are beyond our control. When we can believe that, we may find it easier to make constructive choices about what to do with those feelings. Power Rangers is my number one guilty pleasure. I love it. I just do. It's how I feel, and that's never changed. It's not logical, it's counter to so many of my sensibilities. I've never really been a Japanese monster movie guy, and I like stories with complex characters and an internal logic and self-awareness and a little depth to the sci-fi mythology. In everything I hold storytellers accountable for, Power Rangers rarely holds up to real scrutiny. But I still can't get enough of it. That may not make any more sense than a lot of these episodes, but I'll see if, like Mr. Rogers said, I can do something constructive with those feelings. If I were a consistent human being with no contradictions, I would have outgrown this show a long time ago. There are other things I still feel nostalgia for that don't hold up anymore for me, like Captain Planet and the Super Mario Brothers Super Show. I still have fond memories of those shows, I still appreciate how they shaped my childhood, but I don't enjoy watching them much as an adult. I should have the very same thing with Power Rangers. I doubt if most people, without an interest in other things that are similar like Godzilla or other tokusatsu series, that's Japanese for guys in spandex suits fighting monsters, would appreciate Power Rangers if they had zero exposure to it or as children. When I've shown it to uninitiated friends, I've always warned them that there is an adjustment to be made. You can't expect real-world logic or characters with any real depth, and it's about the cheesiest thing you'll ever lay eyes on. It's the opposite of the 1960s live-action Batman series. That's a campy show with a whole other layer of satire and innuendo and tongue-in-cheekness I didn't appreciate until I grew up. Power Rangers is sometimes more self-aware than at other times. The pilot has Zordon calling for overbearing teenagers, which is kind of a dig at the TV stereotype. And a lot of the tech in the show is quasi-tronic. Maybe because the show was so quasi-everything, quasi-fantasy, quasi-science fiction, but it doesn't really have that other layer. In fact, when I came back to it as an adult, I realized it was about three-quarters of a layer thinner than I thought when I was a kid, because I brought so much to it with my own imagination, just like with Ninja Turtles. I thought it was so much more serious and dramatic because of what I filled in on the playground and an adventures I'd create with action figures, a phenomenon I discussed at length in the Ninja Turtles Coming Out of Their Shells review. Both Turtles and Power Rangers did what they were designed to do. They created formulaic, simplistic, disposable stories to sell a product that kids would let their imaginations run rampant with. On their own, these shows are chocolate bunnies, sweet and enticing on the outside, but totally hollow on the inside. Any real substance was added by the viewer and for himself only. But I'm not doing that now. I realize now how arbitrary the rules of the Morphin Grid are, and how flimsy and nonsensical Rita's ostensibly brilliant and multifaceted plans are, and how one-note and interchangeable our heroes kind of are, and how Zordon is not in any way a wise mentor and is just a giant exposition head. 
but I still love watching it. Why is the original Ninja Turtles hard for me to go back to, but Power Rangers is still awesome, despite not really holding up on any kind of story level? Now, Ninja Turtles may be a horse of a different color. That show is based on more sophisticated material that's actually gritty and has that bite I thought the cartoon had because of how edgy the action figures looked and how adult the movie felt, despite the fact that, that property starts from a parody place. I'm still a Turtles fan, but my investment now is in versions with real fleshed-out characters and more compelling stories. Power Rangers does get smarter and more coherent, but it's all still mostly relative to the standards or lack thereof set by Mighty Morphin. I get really excited when Power Rangers gets anywhere near actual character arcs and villains with real motivations. There's a more complex and character-driven take on this material now in the Boom comics, and I've long yearned for someone to take that aesthetic and the basic ideas and create a more concrete mythology around them. If that had existed 20 years ago, I'm not sure if I'd have the same relationship with this show. I've compared the Ninja Turtles to Power Rangers before, because at least as toy commercials, they have a lot in common. I think it's important to note that without Ninja Turtles, you don't have Power Rangers. It's a show about martial arts influenced by Eastern culture, about a team of heroes that look identical, but are identified by the colors they wear and the weapons they carry. They're led by a hidden, old, wise sage who's been tragically transformed from what he once was, and they always fight the same group of villains that come from space or another dimension and live in an evil, secluded fortress. They also both have forward titles, with a prominent adjective modifying a noun preceded by two more less important adjectives designed to say up front that this property is absurd and to appeal to young boys. I'm not saying all those similarities happen because Power Rangers is trying to duplicate the Ninja Turtles' success. Several of those components are present in and there because of the Japanese show Power Rangers is based on. I am saying there's no way you get Mighty Morphin Power Rangers without Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And Power Rangers knows it. It's no surprise Saban went after the Turtles' license and crossed the two properties over just a few years later in Power Rangers in Space. Of course, I can't hold everything to the same standards. As I've alluded to already, it's not art, it's merchandising. It's an intentionally campy, silly, absurd show, an absurdity necessitated partly by the ridiculous nature of the Japanese footage it has to work with, replete with a witch flying on a bicycle, superheroes with special moves like stacking themselves up like cheerleaders, and a turtle monster with a traffic light in its head. That's not to say that a show with a little more character depth couldn't have been made around that material. What's going on in the costume stuff in Zoo Ranger has nothing to do with the high school drama in this show, but it isn't really about telling stories so much as it is entertaining kids and appeasing their parents at the most basic level. Power Rangers isn't about blending all its moving parts together to make something cohesive. It's about those separate parts, and it could not care less if you're enjoying it as a whole piece, as long as you show up for the thing you like and then convince your parents to buy a Megazord. Power Rangers has action. It has comedy, and it has public service announcements. In that order of importance, and almost like segments in a variety show or a cartoon show with other segments, like Rocky and Bullwinkle with Peabody and Sherman. It doesn't become a different show like that, but it kind of becomes a different show. James Rolfe says in his review that when the Rangers are out of costume, it's a sitcom, and I agree with that. It's also kind of a soap opera, and I think those of us that grew up with the show when it aired watched it that way. Will Tommy get together with Kimberly? Will Tommy become evil again? Will Tommy lose his powers forever? 
yeah, all the soap opera stuff always had to do with Tommy. And yes, sitcoms have their dramatic elements, too. Was Ross justified in sleeping with another girl hours after he and Rachel declared themselves on a break is a moral conundrum that will be debated till the end of time. But regardless of any kind of character substance or deeper questions at the center of these air quotes, dilemmas, Power Rangers played them dead seriously, like it was a primetime drama. I've talked about this in my Power Rangers movie reviews. All this series really has to do to live up to its own standards is to be exciting, have enough fun fight choreography and crazy action, and keep up a creative level of absurdity, and most of that, at least in this first season, is up to Zoo Ranger. As long as it doesn't just sit there, it doesn't have to make sense. To me, it's practically immune to my basic standards of story critique. It isn't that I'm incapable of being critical because my nostalgia gets in the way. There's all kinds of stuff I wish the season did differently, and I'll get into it, like how padded out Green with Evil is, and how relatively dumbed down the Rangers are to stretch out the mystery in that episode, and how we know next to nothing about Zordon and his history with Rita, but a lot of the continuity and internal logic problems are weirdly part of the fun for me. It's like Mario physics. It makes no sense, but making observations about how and why it doesn't work is a lot of the fun for me. I suppose it could have just as easily ended up being a little more coherent and a lot less entertaining, considering how formulaic it is. Every episode is more or less the same. Rita Repulsa hatches a scheme either to destroy the Power Rangers or the Earth, and if she's trying the second thing, which is her endgame in the first place, but she's rarely as concerned with that as she is with getting rid of the Rangers, their demise is part of her plan. This begins a long tradition of Power Rangers villains who can't decide if they want to take over the planet or destroy it. She sends putties, the Rangers fight them, usually unmorphed, and then there's a monster, which often puts one or more of them in a 60s Batman-type death trap. The other Rangers figure out either how to help their friends, break a spell Rita or the monster has someone under, or the monster's weak spot. And almost always, Rita throws her magic wand, which is more like a scepter, but that's what she calls it, makes her monster grow, and the Rangers blow up the monster real good after a Godzilla-type fight featuring a guy in a Megazord costume dancing around with a guy in a rubber monster suit in a set meant to make them look way bigger than they are, with buildings that wobble and everything. And in the meantime, the bullies, Bulk and Skull, are trying to prove they're better than the Rangers at some competitive event they claim they're great at, but they've never attempted in their lives. And they always lose for the same reason Rita does. Their hearts aren't in the right place, and they don't care about anyone but themselves. But they're not evil, just misguided and bumbling, so they pay for their mistakes with grossness rather than explosions. Stuff like pies to the face, or doused with something slimy like a Nickelodeon game show, or mayonnaise or mustard, really every sort of condiment, and so much cake. Bulk and Skull land on so many sheet cakes, earning at the juice bar finally makes Bulk pay for one or he won't let him back into the place. You wouldn't think I'd find myself ever looking away from the screen like I'm watching a slasher movie, but there are a few moments when Bulk and Skull are covered in gunk, especially in the not one but two food fights in the season, that my less-than-ironclad stomach gets the better of me. And there's always some moral lesson that's spelled out at the end, and often exposited before anyone's really learned it. They'll give us the important theme of the episode, and it's not so much about a character learning anything as a PSA we stop everything to deliver. Those are hilariously intrusive. Most of them are about either using martial arts only for defense, and that's even in the second verse of the full theme song, or the importance of recycling and the dangers of pollution. 
or safety first. Sometimes there's an easy character arc, and it's usually about having confidence and believing in yourself. Those usually feature a character who totally sucks at something, works hard at it, and is the best there ever has been at it by the end. Like the kid in Second Chance, who doesn't make Ernie's soccer team, gets to try out again, then is either magically so good he makes team captain, or Ernie just does that to artificially stimulate his self-esteem. Or Billy, in Different Drum, who has trouble getting the moves down in a dance class, but gains a little confidence because of his friends and encouragement, and suddenly he's breakdancing at the end. And then there's Tommy in football season, who's initially awkward trying to learn the sport because he's trained all his life for martial arts and hilariously can't stop karate kicking the tackle dummy and getting into a fighting stance when he's doing drills. He looks even more embarrassing because all of his friends are casually playing football for fun, and it turns out the other guys are also all trying out and aren't remotely nervous. Plus, all these kids have always been good at every sport we've ever seen them try, but apparently Tommy just can't figure out football. By the end of the episode, though, Tommy not only makes the team, he's of course star quarterback. Rocky, this show is not, though the next Red Ranger's name will be Rocky. There's no killing yourself for a draw in this show. The lessons are so oversimplified. The series always seems to say, if you try and you're a good person, you'll always win, which is, of course, just not how the real world works. It's not that fair. But this is a live-action cartoon, where the good guys always win, there's no moral gray area to the heroes or villains, nobody ever gets hurt, and the beings the good guys destroy don't count as living beings. They're just programmed automatons, so we don't have to get into the ethics or existential identity issues. I suppose my biggest criticism of the show as entertainment for children is that the answers to difficult problems are too easy, and kids might take that to heart. It's too surface and shallow about fragile things kids cope with, like personal insecurity and lack of self-esteem, that I think need to be handled more thoughtfully if you're gonna go any further than just mentioning them in passing. The same argument could be made, though, for how the notion of violence is handled. The Rangers are constantly preaching about only using violence as a last resort, and the show goes out of its way to have fun with all the fight choreography and the big dumb action without glorifying real violence. To make cartoon violence that's clearly not meant to be taken seriously, but to talk about actual violence so this martial arts show doesn't look like it's condoning beating people up to solve problems. We hadn't had these live-action beat-em-up shows for years like Japan had, which is why Power Rangers felt fresh, but it also concerned a lot of parents. Stylized fighting was one thing, and in shows like Ninja Turtles, there was rarely any violence to anything but robots. But live action made it feel more real, and kids were more readily imagining themselves doing what their heroes were, especially since a lot of the locales looked like the places they went to every day, like lakes and public parks. And there was maybe reason for concern. I think a lot of parents felt like fighting was bad, period. But the larger issue, I think, should be violence without consequences. If people can get hurt or die in fiction, kids know what the repercussions might be if they decide to punch or kick their way out of situations. I don't like how censored a lot of kids' animation was when I was growing up, because the stakes never felt as high as they did in some of the more mature films I was exposed to, like Terminator 2 or even Demolition Man. But on the other hand, most of the fighting in this show happens in a really heightened context. You can easily explain why the rangers don't get hurt and thrown in the hospital constantly by the protection of the powers bestowed on them by the Morphin Grid. If they're morphed, they don't get injured. They can just weaken, and that helps create a context of total fantasy. The only time they fight out of costume is when they can easily win without their powers, and as soon as that gets serious, they protect themselves so they don't get hurt and match their opponent's strength by morphing. 
It's already complete escapist junk food. Kids feel safe as they immerse themselves in this world because their heroes always succeed, whether it's in defeating evil or living their dreams. After all, these heroes somehow have no trouble balancing being superheroes with getting their homework in on time, going to a jillion after-school clubs, starring on the football team, and no one ever notices they're gone when they're fighting monsters. So it's a wholesome world that looks nothing like ours with moments like Jason breaking down diving safety or Trini talking about the danger dangers of toxic waste, and the hope is that kids will know what to take to heart and what to leave in the TV screen. But we took this show so seriously as kids, there may have been some legitimate cause for concern on the part of our parents. I think as long as parents know what their kids are watching and can set them straight about what to look out for in the real world, Power Rangers is preposterous, harmless fun. Some of the later series allow for greater personal stakes and sacrifice and take a little more care in how they handle this topic. Power Rangers is kind of in that so bad it's good category, at least as far as the narrative is concerned. There are visual and production aspects that, cheap and thrown together as it may be, it does absolutely excel at, and that really set it apart from everything else that was on at the time, that had as much to do with its status as a pop culture phenomenon as the aesthetic it legally stole from another show and built its show around. These actors were all cast mainly for their martial arts or athletic abilities and its shows. I knew a lot of kids who only watched the show for the choreography and justified tuning in past the age it was still cool because of that. It's not just a lot of generic punching and kicking. There's a lot of legitimate stunt work and real talent in the out-of-costume fighting that was shot outside of the Sentai footage, and if that had been phoned in, I doubt the show would have been as successful. As a kid, you can imagine yourself in any head-to-toe covered outfit, but it's really inspiring to see these alleged high school kids, because they all look 20 from the very start, able to backflip and hip-hop dance and do advanced gymnastics, all while fighting the forces of evil. Being a superhero might be impossible, but those are real young people doing amazing things, and maybe I could learn to do that too. I mean, not me. I was never coordinated enough to do anything so physically advanced. That's why I learned the ancient and sacred art of analyzing superhero movies. Those who can't do, review. Power Rangers also had a flavor and a style that was instantly recognizable as contemporary, as the 90s, which occasionally comes up in dialogue. When Billy gets the communicators working in High Five, Kimberly says, This is so 90s but a flavor that was also distinct and totally new. There's such a driving energy and a constant sense of excitement. Again, a lot of that high-octane, fast-paced, bright-colored fun comes from Zoo Ranger, but the American production nicely complemented that with a futuristic sci-fi command center, complete with a weird floating head for a mentor and an incompetent but cool-looking robot that's right out of Lost in Space, a really eye-popping logo and opening titles, and a morphing sequence we saw every episode, sometimes several times an episode, sometimes twice in less than two minutes, and we never got tired of seeing that same footage over and over again any more than we did the Japanese Megazord footage. There's lightning and bolts of energy all over the screen constantly, and all that stuff helped the cheaply produced show feel way bigger and more kinetic than it really was. Was it style over substance? Oh yes, no doubt. But what style? And I've always felt that at least 40% of what makes it work is the music, which makes the show feel so much edgier than it really is. It gives the show that attitude Zordon is talking about in the pilot. These aren't teenagers with attitude. They're the most straight-laced, polite, rule followers in high school. Even the closest thing we have to a bad boy or loner type when we get Tommy has to get brainwashed before he does anything remotely uncouth, and the most against-the-grain thing he does otherwise is practice karate all by himself. And of course, the six of them have to have the highest grades in the class. 
Ron Wasserman's hard rock score felt like it had its finger on the pulse of what was really grabbing kids in music right then, with hard-edged Metallica-esque bass tracks and guitar melodies and shredding and wailing solos. When I was eight or nine, it felt like this kid show that was sold directly to me had really adult music in it, which is counterintuitive. That maybe should have been too anachronistic to work, but it didn't feel like a cheesy show trying to get people to take it more seriously. It really did give it more weight in the moment, and it made us feel less like we were watching Kitty Fair. That spell wore off on a lot of us as we got older, but at least, to me, that music never stopped rocking. The sound is very 1992. It wouldn't necessarily impress kids who aren't growing up with that kind of music now, but a lot of it holds up really well and is some of the least dated stuff in the show. Ron Wasserman also wrote the theme for the X-Men cartoon, which I think is one of the catchiest and maybe most epic rock melodies of all time. And laugh at me if you want to, but the Power Rangers theme is up there. The lyrics might be cheesy, but the guitar licks are rad, boss, face-melting. There's a reason I'm not a music critic. It's the perfect blend of edge and camp, and the music is so cool, it's easy to forget it's about fighting fair and all that. It's also perfect toy commercial music. I could imagine Wasserman writing Go Go Power Rangers not for a TV show, but as an ad jingle. But it's not just that theme. The whole show sounds like that, with several more tracks from Wasserman in that style, and some of them are just as good. A few of them sound moodier and darker, which continues to create an atmosphere that elevates this goofy material beyond a generic dime-a-dozen cartoon. My personal favorite from this season is I Will Win, which has a surprisingly emotional chorus. I love how much passion comes out of Wasserman with this stuff, and if you just listen to the music and lyrics, you might think the show was about more than it is. Determination, perseverance, yeah, the show talks about that stuff all the time, but these vocals are dripping with a conviction that our heroes themselves are just never allowed to really display. Earlier in the season, the music is still that hard-edged rock, and there's a lot of riffing around the main theme, but these new songs don't start popping up until later in the season, and that's when the show fully finds its sound. The song Fight, I was surprised to find out, doesn't come up until the 43rd episode, Something Fishy, and interestingly, doesn't get lyrics until the very next episode, Lions and Blizzards, almost as if Wasserman is developing that song between episodes and hadn't recorded the lyrics yet. The first time I noticed I Will Win wasn't until Grumblebee, nine from the end. These are songs I've always associated with Power Rangers and just assumed were always there. They're clearly used immediately after they're written because there are references to stuff that's going on in the show right then. I've listened to Wasserman's Redux album a lot, and I used to wonder about the line, you've got a secret weapon, they don't know about your Ultrazord protection. I thought maybe he'd written that before the writers had landed on all the terminology. Maybe they had thought about Ultrazord and then went with Megazord. After all, the first time the Rangers used their weapons, Zack calls his power axe the Cosmic Cannon, and then never again. I had forgotten that there is such a thing as the Ultrazord, and it's used constantly at this point in the series. Though Rita certainly has to know about this secret weapon since it comes up so much. It's the Mega Dragon Zord on top of Tor, the Carrier Zord, and it's basically the Corbomite maneuver from Star Trek if it weren't a bluff. And once they put that thing together, it's game over. They never lose with it, and it's a good thing because I don't know what other recourse the Rangers would have after that. Every time, Jason says, fire all weapons, and it is the 4th of July until the monster goes boom. They'd have nothing left to throw at the monster except for Ernie's cream pies. 
Anyway, that's what that lyric was talking about. Considering the sitcom scenes are scored like a Warner Brothers cartoon, with specific music gags written to enhance the comedy, such as it is, it's cool that the action songs are about some of what's really going on with the action stuff. In the Go Green Ranger song, there's a line that goes, Don't let evil Rita put a spell on your mind. In the second season, that line is changed to Lord Zed, and it actually fits in the meter better. When I see something like the Ultra Zord, which is akin to a recurring Deus Ex Machina, I wonder, why wouldn't you just lead with that? There's no reason to ever have a fight if you have a weapon your enemy can't stop. Rita has that problem too, and we'll get to her dice roll battle strategy later, but there's actually a built-in explanation on the hero side. It's the ranger's absolute moral code, and it's the reason Angel Grove is always getting attacked by monsters. It's one of my favorite things about this show. The formula itself is justified by Zordon's principles. There's so little logic to anything else that happens, it didn't need this either, but the rangers let Rita stay on the moon and keep attacking them because they're pacifists except in self-defense scenarios. Zordon gives the rangers three rules in the pilot, which they must follow or lose the protection of the power. And of course, we never do a juicy story about a ranger who breaks a rule and has to face the consequences, though we do stuff like that in later series. The rules are, never use your powers for personal gain, never escalate a fight unless Rita forces you to, and always keep your identity a secret. The reason the rangers don't just go to the moon and bring the fight to Rita, or go right to Ultra Zord, or even fight putties in their costumes in the first place, is because that's a misuse of power. Using power responsibly and making sure you aren't consumed by it means never using it when it's not absolutely necessary, and relying on your own God-given talents so you don't bank too much on something you could use to hurt or take advantage of someone else, like Rita does. If you took that principle to its furthest conclusion, you'd have to deal with the gray areas. The should Batman kill the Joker question. While you're trying to set the Superman example, how many people are being endangered that wouldn't if you'd use your power to take out that threat once and for all? Like with the Joker, we're giving the benefit of the doubt to a lunatic who isn't suddenly going to see the light and stop wreaking havoc just because you keep offering her the opportunity to change. And in real life, and this is an idea that we keep bringing into our contemporary superhero fiction, there would be a sizable contingency of the public, probably the majority, that wouldn't trust that you'd always use whatever it is those costumes give you the power to do and your giant mech robots for the greater good and who would want government oversight, and for some, government control, so the military could use their weapons for offense. But again, while it's not as self-aware as Adam West Batman, it's not supposed to be believable, and it knows how silly it is. Things always go right for the Power Rangers because they always do the right thing. So the show encourages that behavior in kids by always giving them a positive outcome, not by showing realistic consequences when people do wrong. So no one ever gets hurt in these fights, and no matter how far Rita escalates things, the Rangers can always escalate them higher because they're using their power the right way and they deserve to. This can't possibly be intentional, but I like the inherent symbolism in Rita making her monsters grow, while the rangers have to pilot machines that were presumably painstakingly built by people, and they have to put their own lives on the line to pilot them. The rangers should never be too big, should never loom over the rest of us like gods, and I like that Rita makes rangers grow when she's controlling them, or has rangers of her own, but when they're fighting for the sight of good, they can't do that. 
The Rangers always have to do things, relative to Rita anyway, the hard way. Her ways are easy. She doesn't work for anything, but she thinks she's entitled to everything, and she always loses. Power Rangers always puts this in terms of fighting fair, like with Trini's Kung Fu training and Plague of the Mantis. There should be rules in war, and if your opponent cheats, you'll always take the high road, no matter the sacrifices. The Rangers just get lucky they live in a universe where there's always a way to win without compromising your principles. They'd never find themselves in a situation like Superman and Man of Steel, where he feels like the only way he can beat Zod is to snap his neck. This season doesn't deal with the other two rules as much. Powers for personal gain never really comes up, except for places a ranger wishes he could teleport, but there are people watching, and that's usually more related to the other rule anyway, which is to keep your identity a secret. These kids are so altruistic, and seem to have already figured out everything there is to learn in life, except the occasional manufactured moment of insecurity. So, of course, using their powers to make money or get ahead in school never even occurs to them. The secret identity rule is used for sitcom scenarios as much as dramatic ones. A ranger will really need to morph, but their personal lives will get in the way, kind of like with Spider-Man, except the consequences to their reputations and relationships are never long-lasting. Zack's attempts to woo the girl of his dreams, Angela, keep getting dashed by superhero business, like when he leaves her for most of a movie at the theater, or when the pearl earrings he gives her turn out to be part of one of Rita's schemes. But by the end of the season, he still gets the girl. My favorite of these comedic moments is in A Bad Reflection on You, when the Rangers are in detention with Bulk and Skull because Kaplan thinks they pulled a prank that was perpetuated by their doppelgangers, and Jason convinces the morons to close their eyes and count to ten while they do a magic trick and disappear. The kind of stuff I tried on my little brother when he was four. And then, rather than teleporting, like, say, to the command center and then morphing, they morph right there! in the room in front of Balkan Skull, and then are suddenly at the scene to fight their counterparts. There's never any discussion about why the Rangers have to keep their identity secret. It obviously goes along with the idea of responsibility, which is at the heart of the Ranger Code. Keeping the secret protects anyone who finds out about it from harm because the bad guys might not go after them, and you shouldn't get recognition as yourself for just doing the right thing. But I'm just assuming that's the point. It plays more like superheroes are just supposed to have secret identities, and so they do. After all, the bad guys know who they are from the beginning, because Rita can see all things with her telescope, except for when she can't, so it's not to protect their families. They're just screwed if Rita thinks to go after them. Luckily, she's evil, but not attack you in your house evil. I mean, she'll send Squat and Babu to steal your stuff, but not to attack you while you're sleeping. She doesn't play fair, but there seem to be lines drawn by the boundaries of 90s children's entertainment she won't cross. The only time she goes after the ranger's parents, in Return of an Old Friend, she waits until they're all at the juice bar for Parents' Day, and she just tosses them in another dimension until the spell is broken and they're let out. Rita makes that mistake a lot. Whenever she takes something that doesn't belong to her, she always makes sure it's connected to a monster or an object that will return the thing back to normal and to its rightful owner as soon as the spell is broken. It's odd that Zordon claims to want overbearing and emotional teenagers, because not only is that the opposite of the personality types he chooses, it's obviously not what he really wants. 
and as hip and cool as the show tries to be, they have to be total squares to even be Power Rangers. Everything about the power is designed to only work if your heart is in the right place. You lose the power if you don't follow the rules. You can't morph if you don't have self-confidence, which we learn in Crystal of Nightmares, where the Rangers have a shared dream of Zordon stripping them of their powers, and they question their worthiness and lose their confidence. That's the big idea the 2017 movie took from this season and really ran with. And the central conflict of that movie is kids who have to find their sense of responsibility and selflessness before they're worthy of the power, before the power will protect them. But there's none of that pesky coming-of-age stuff here. These kids are perfect except for superficial and obligatory flaws, and there's not much of a difference between any of them. But patterns begin to form as the series progresses. Building blocks that could be used like all the distinct iconography with the arbitrary, inconsistent rules to create something a lot deeper, which is precisely what Kyle Higgins has done with the Boom comics. The Rangers rarely say anything that reveals much about them. Their dialogue tends to be wooden and extraneous, or else is expository. We do know a few concrete things about each character, but they remain two-dimensional and archetypal because we don't really know anything about their backgrounds or experiences that lead them there. But let's see what we do know about each of them and see if we can draw any conclusions at all about their personalities. Jason is our team leader. He's hardworking and self-critical. His biggest fear, which is the only remotely non-generic example of lack confidence in Island of Illusion, is letting his team down. He spends most of his time practicing, teaching, and competing in karate. He acts as though he has the weight of the world on his shoulders, and of all of the rangers, he has the strongest sense of responsibility and self-sacrifice. He puts his first karate trophy in the class time capsule, demonstrating his pride in his work, but his greater desire to inspire others. And we don't do anything with Jason and dating. That guy's Batman. He's too committed to making himself a physical paradigm for a personal life. Billy is the obligatory antisocial genius, but he may be the most deeply characterized of the Rangers. I didn't say he was deeply characterized. I said the most. Comparatively, the show is inconsistent about whether Billy is actually uncoordinating in dancing or calisthenics, but a lot of his problems come from being unsure of himself, which makes him kind of the heart of the show, since he's the only ranger that struggles regularly with the main character trait that makes you worthy of being a ranger. It's never about anything very earth-shattering. He doesn't risk losing his powers over it, except when they're all under an anti-self-esteem spell, and that's not an irregular thing with Rita, but it makes him come more alive than the others. I wonder if the ranger suit gives him his martial arts ability, or if he has more confidence when he's wearing it to use the ability he already has. He's usually pretty awkward and bumbling in putty fights out of costume. But then, when Jason encourages him in his karate class, he does what everyone does in these Believe in Yourself episodes. He goes from terrible to brilliant, and he gets a yellow belt inside like a day. We know from the pilot that when you're morphed, you have the knowledge to use your Zords, something else the 2017 movie built on, so it's possible that part of the power is fighting knowledge and prowess. But I'd like to think it's more the Spider-Man thing, that behind the mask, Billy feels more free to come alive and be himself, and he's able to demonstrate skills he already has. It's more clearly the case in later shows that the powers give the Rangers fighting knowledge, like in Dino Thunder, with kids who know nothing about martial arts but are great fighters in costume. The closest to a martial artist in that show is Connor, who plays soccer like he's in The Matrix before he gets powers. But I digress. Billy is, of course, a genius inventor like Donatello. He makes the Rangers communicators, which is weird because you'd think Zordon, having done this with other people before, would have a built-in way to communicate with his team already. 
and it's strangely counterintuitive to accidentally include a teleportation feature in the communicator. That's technology the command center already has. Why not just have Billy make that part of his invention rather than an accident? He also builds a flying car, which, like Doc Brown's car, it's the only thing he builds that works the way it's supposed to. He also makes a mind-reading machine in switching places that switches his mind with Kimberly's and bulks with Skull's. And in Mighty Morphin Mutants, he makes a device to help Tommy remember stuff that immediately goes haywire. Billy keeps getting close to feeling more like a real person, and then the show remembers it's a cartoon again, and so do I. It's hilarious to consider how much ultra-advanced technology gets invented by kids in the show, not at all related to Zordon's tech. Besides Billy's inventions, we also see a realistic virtual reality headset, a machine that can disintegrate your pants without taking your legs with it, and a device that can pick out your clothes and dress you. And that's all from some elementary school kids at a science fair. At this rate, we should have warp drive capability by next Thursday. Billy's greatest physical fear is fish because of a bad day he had as a kid when a fish bit his finger, which is arbitrary and weird given that it does nothing to build on what's already been done with his personality, but is the only flashback we get for one of the Rangers in 60 episodes. Billy finds a girl that's cartoonishly exactly as technical as he is and also speaks like there's a thesaurus behind her eyes in Peace, Love, and Woe. They have everything in common. They both even graduated from the Accelerated Baby Genius program. After the Power Rangers rescue her from another dimension, they get together at the end and we never see her again. I'm baffled by the continuity simultaneous with the lack thereof. Zack chasing after Angela is practically a season-long subplot, but Billy gets a girlfriend, and it never comes up again. There are a couple things like this where I can't help but consider the real-life actor and his experiences in relation to his character. David Yost has gone on record about how he was chastised profusely by the producers for his homosexuality, and how that affected his own feelings of self-worth, even affecting choices made about his character, apparently including Billy losing his powers in Zeo. Billy is clearly heterosexual, not just from this example, but because he ultimately, in Zeo, leaves Earth to be with a female alien on Aquitar. But it is interesting, and I'm sure totally coincidental, that the first time Billy sees a girl that seems perfect for him, he tells Zack he doesn't care about chasing girls. I'm not really interested in attracting female attention through bodily gyrations. It's just an odd coincidence. The one that bothers me, though, is in Reign of the Jellyfish, with the heavy-handed message at the end, as the rangers spell out a list of things they dream about for a perfect utopian future, they each get an item. One of them says, no war, another, no hatred, it's laid on real thick. Billy gets no prejudice. Wow. I always look at these things as their own entity, regardless of the personal behavior of anyone involved, so this doesn't hurt the show itself. But having listened to David Yost talk about the way he was treated and the low point he hit after the show, that was a cringeworthy moment for me. Billy and Kimberly are the only characters who seem to gradually change over time, and with both, that seems to be less of a story choice and more of a change the actors make in their acting that perhaps influence the overall production. Billy talks more like a regular person and dresses less typically nerdy, and Kimberly becomes less of an airhead. Kimberly is the typical popular teenage girl stereotype without all the drama and mean girl syndrome she has in the reboot. 
She seems real materialistic and shallow in the pilot, and kinda dumb. She starts off as the opposite of Jason. She doesn't have his sense of loyalty or leadership, and wants to bail on Zordon immediately, until Jason insists they save the world from the giant gold guy who's going to smash up their town. She's immediately not so ditzy after that, except the occasional moment the show wants to remind us that's who she's supposed to be, and those look-at-me-I'm-a-girly-girl moments come out of nowhere. She's immediately more like that again as soon as she's in Billy's body, and that's not a knock on Yost. That's how she's written. And naturally, she's supposedly great at cooking, and he sucks at it in her body because he's a guy and she's a girl. We know Kimberly is a great gymnast, except when the writers forget about that. In No Clowning Around, she says she'd never be able to get on stilts because she can only balance shopping bags. What? We know Kimberly thinks Tommy's hot, and they're the only Rangers in a committed relationship by the end of the season. Zack finally gets Angela interested, but she's a shallow jerk face who needs her man to buy her expensive things, so that's not likely to last and hardly counts. Kimberly and Tommy are cute together, but there's no reason beyond that's who the writers paired up from the beginning that either of them belong together over anyone else. The one revelation we get that might have informed her character and why she's so comparatively shallow is her parents' divorce. And that's the closest to actual character-building backstory anyone gets, apart from Billy getting beaten by a fish once when he was a kid. Return of an Old Friend uses the Parents' Day excuse to introduce everyone's mom and dad simultaneously, finally, as if it just occurred to the writers that we've never seen them and that there hasn't really been any family drama. You'd think the rangers would have difficulty explaining where they are whenever they fight a monster. You know, a citywide emergency where every caring parent would be devastated if they didn't know where their children were. But that's not a thing they ever have to deal with. Nice to confirm they all have parents and still live with them, and this isn't some wacky universe where adults are still in high school at 23 years old. At least that would explain why none of these actors look young enough to be there. Which is, side note, made even more curious by the organization of classes and difficulty of subjects. As the actress Royce Heron pointed out when I met her at Paramorphicon, Miss Appleby taught every subject. In high school. The students walk the halls and grab books like they have different courses in different rooms, but Miss Appleby is always the teacher of everything, I guess, but home ec. Yet the kids must have gone to different classes away from each other because Tommy is never there with them in the episodes where he's not the Green Ranger. Maybe he was so depressed he just cut class all the time. It often sounds like they're in fifth grade, not whatever grade they're in. In For Whom the Bell Tolls, Miss Appleby teaches English and tells the kids to read chapter four. Question marks. Why do we need them? Anyway, so Kimberly has more family than just the pilot uncle she saved when he passed out on his plane and she had to pilot it with almost no help from Zordon. She has parents, and they're divorced, and like every kid does, she blames herself. No idea what the situation was or how she rationalizes her guilt, but by the end of that episode, her folks tell her it's not her fault, and now she's all better. Nice of the show to acknowledge a more real-world problem kids go through besides bullying and being afraid of heights and spiders and biting fish, but it's totally random and out of nowhere, and it's not really used to draw her character any more vividly. But then I guess I can't expect that in this show. If we call too much attention to life outside the juice bar, we have to build more sets, and the rangers can't spend all their time there like it's Fox Kids Cheers, where everyone knows your name and the fact that you wear the same colored shirt as a Power Ranger, and that you spend all your time practicing punching and kicking. The only family for the Rangers we had before this was Kimberly's Uncle Steve, and in the immediate preceding episode, Trini's famous karate scientist Uncle Howard. 
Oh yeah, forgot about that major scientific breakthrough. That guy made a chemical that turns him invisible. And I guess Kimberly has a grandmother too, with a spinning wheel that Rita turns into a terror wheel. Kimberly is also the character aside from Tommy who's played up as the most tragic as far as Rita interfering with her personal life. It's always stuff that feels way more trivial than it has to. Rita could be getting in the way of Kimberly getting scholarships or a big internship opportunity, but it's stuff like getting the float model she's building to enter into a parade destroyed. Yeah, whole season overview, and I'm talking about float models. It's one of the most genuinely emotional scenes we get from her, where Kim is just fed up with Rita and feeling the burden of self-sacrifice being a Power Ranger. But again, the good guys always win in all things and are rewarded to the point where they hardly sacrifice anything. Tommy salvaged her model, saves the day, and earns major boyfriend points. And yeah, he's the most tragic of the Rangers, but don't feel too bad about his losing his powers, because he'll get rewarded next season with a brand new Ranger coin and a talking sword and everything. Even when Kim writes him the infamous breakup letter, he successfully rebounds with Catherine, the next Pink Ranger. Being a Power Ranger is awesome. Eventually, the world always coalesces to your will. I kind of get the sense that Zack is supposed to be the Michelangelo of the group. The comic relief who's happy-go-lucky, but he's not constantly cracking jokes or anything. He just generally seems to be more in touch with his sense of humor and looser than his friends. Like everyone but Trini, he's defined more by a hobby than by any personality trait. He's a hip-hop dancer, and he incorporates his dancing into a martial art he develops called Hip-Hop Keto, which is essentially karate with dance steps thrown in between movesets. He's afraid of spiders, which is a fear he overcomes in his obligatory Face Your Fears episode, Itsy Bitsy Spider. Everyone has one, but he doesn't seem too keen on snakes either. Early on, it looks like Zack is going to be like Jordy LaForge, successful in all things except romance, and for no good reason. I didn't remember this Angela chick, but she pops up periodically to dismiss Zack out of hand until she finally decides, begrudgingly, to go out with him. I don't know what Zack sees in her beyond the physical. She's constantly teasing him and stringing him along, at one point giving him every reason to think she's trying to ask him out until they go on their date and he finds out it's not a date at all. She just wanted him to help her chaperone some kids at a cartoon festival. No, Angela, you knew what he thought that was. You're a viper. And then, when she does go out with him, it's just because he takes her to a fancy restaurant and buys her stuff. She apologizes for being materialistic at the end, but I don't buy that she's learned anything. She is Felicity smoke and arrow season three and after. Zack is the one of the six who most tends to overcompensate. He has to learn to not pretend to be something he's not a lot. He's an extrovert who comes off self-assured, but he has more in common with Billy than anyone. Too often, though, that uncertainty comes out of nowhere, like when he assumes he's going to lose a dance competition for no reason except this is a believe-in-yourself episode. Of all the Rangers, Trini is the one the writers seem most clueless about, and while I'd classify everyone else as two-dimensional, she's inching sometimes toward the first dimension. Trini has that same drive Jason does, but it's not as focused. He's all about martial arts, and she is, I guess, about being socially and environmentally conscious? She preaches recycling and protecting the earth a lot, and she's trying to get signatures for causes like Penny and Dr. Horrible, but I'm not sure if she has any hobbies beyond that, until we get way late in the season and she's working with a kung fu master in Plague of the Mantis. Man, the juice bar must be the karate mecca of high school kids in California. So I guess she's just female Jason with a fear of heights. 
Seriously, that seems to be the only thing anyone remembers about Trini, like Sulu in the original Star Trek with his fencing sword. She's got that one arbitrary thing that stands out in the only Trini-centered episode anyone remembers, and it stuck. She's like Storm in the X-Men. A lot of people remember she's a claustrophobe and not much else. Kyle Higgins took a lot of the basic character traits and flaws I'm pointing out and fleshed them out in his comics, but even he couldn't help but do the acrophobia thing really early. I don't know, I suppose I could make the case that Trini is a little bit of each other ranger rolled into one if I'm really stretching. She's got some of the same stereotypical high school girl stuff Kimberly has, but she never seems selfish or shallow. She has Jason's sense of honor and determination, she has a little of Zack's free spirit, and she's smarter than the average bear, like Billy, maybe not a genius, but she does understand everything Billy says and constantly has to translate his nerd speak for her friends. Maybe she got a lot of that from her renaissance man, Uncle Howard, who's brilliant at science and fighting. There's maybe more here to mind than I thought. She might be the girl that's expected to be brilliant at everything because of the high bar other members of her family set, and that's why she pushes herself so hard. There's no reason to really assume that's what it is, but I guess that could be it. But it really feels like the writers never know what to do with her. She's the ranger with the fewest episodes centered around her, and when she is featured, she's almost always paired with someone else, usually Billy, who she seems to have the closest thing to a chemistry with. I've always thought they should have been an item. Tommy's character is most dictated by the Green Ranger footage from the Sentai. He has to look like a loner because he's going to turn evil and fight the Rangers, and then when he's on their side, he still has to be off by himself a lot and played as almost mysterious because the Green Ranger looks different from the others. He's got that cool gold shield thing, and that gives him more power for some reason. And because there's still a lot of Sentai footage to adapt with the five fighting without him. Instead of giving Tommy a real motivation for being so solitary, the excuse is usually just that he's off practicing karate by himself outside. I don't know, maybe he doesn't want to irritate people in the juice bar all the time with all that see hi Tommy's essentially Jason if he was really unlucky and had more flair in his fighting. He's not predisposed to being seduced by evil, he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time and wearing the wrong color. Sarita put a spell on him. After that's broken, he joins the team, no questions asked. Even though Zordon and the Rangers know nothing about him or how he'll fit into their dynamic. You'd think he and Jason might vie for leadership, considering Tommy has the superior power coin and the biggest, baddest solo Zord, and he's presumably not used to being a team player. But nope. They have a karate fight in a competition at the beginning of Green with Evil, and it comes out as a draw, which I guess is maybe kind of foreshadowing for later. Neither is going to beat the other, they're going to join forces at the end, but as Eric has suggested to me, that might be a missed opportunity. Maybe if Tommy had lost, he'd have some kind of a motivation to want to go up against the Rangers and win, as superficial as that is. Jason and Tommy get along swimmingly, except for one episode where they're overly competitive as they're training for that ninja doubles competition, and that's just a token example to do another lesson in teamwork episode. There are a lot of those. It's no surprise the third episode is called Teamwork. This show is a lot like the early episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation. It watches like there's a mandate that there be no interpersonal conflict between our heroes because they're supposed to set the ideal example for the audience. So there are a lot of episodes where Rita puts a magic spell on one or more of them so we can see some of that conflict we might expect if this was a real drama, except without any character growth or consequences since no one's really responsible for anything they do. Reminds me of a lot of episodes of Smallville, except Power Rangers 
Avengers actually has a leg up on that show in that whoever's personality gets altered actually remembers what happened by the end. And on Fins and Needles, Tommy and Jason are put under a spell to constantly try to one-up each other. And they make a bet in a fight that if Jason loses, he lets Tommy be the leader. But if Tommy loses, he gives up his power coin. It's like the Maquis mutiny in Star Trek Voyager. There has to be some kind of outside mental influence involved so we can see something that would have been really natural and dramatic, but would have changed the status quo too much, and we can't have that. Most of the tragedy and drama with Tommy involves his being controlled by Rita, and then later losing his powers to Rita's green candle. When he gets his powers back, there's a vague ticking time bomb on them. There are no concrete rules, so the show can stretch this out as long as it wants to, but he has to conserve his energy, because when it's depleted, he can't be a ranger anymore. That's the closest the season comes to any questions of identity. Is Tommy a Power Ranger, or is he just a glorified guest star, a maverick that sweeps in and saves the day, but he wants to be more? Sometimes Zordon talks to Tommy like he's a reserve ranger, a secret weapon. In The Spitflower, just a few episodes after Tommy joins the team, Zordon holds Tommy back in case they need an ace in the hole as they're fighting the flower power monster. Tommy ends up not doing anything that episode because I guess there's no Sentai footage with the Green Ranger fighting that particular monster. Zordon's phrasing here is curious. If the Power Rangers fail, you will be our last hope. The Power Rangers, as if he's not a ranger, but something other. There are logistical choices I'd love to read into that just don't actually mean anything, like Tommy's complete disappearance between Green Candle and Return of an Old Friend, apart from his cameo in Doomsday. Maybe the reminder that he can't morph is too painful for him to be around his friends during this period. Maybe he feels responsible for the destruction he caused and the trauma he put his friends through during Green with Evil. Maybe he thinks he should have been strong enough to fight Rita, and that his being so easily seduced by her power says something about his character. Maybe he feels responsible for the same reason Kimberly blames herself for her parents' divorce. Maybe it's the only way he can make any sense of it. But the real reason Tommy's nowhere to be found in those episodes is because the show doesn't need him, given the Sentai footage it's adapting. So Jason Frank, as he's credited in the first season, isn't getting paid. Tommy is the cool kid who has the worst luck even out of costume. Almost like there's a price of awkwardness he has to pay for being too cool for school, and sometimes literally. Tommy has the most embarrassing problem in the season, and I love it. In Second Chance, Bulk accidentally breaks Tommy's communicator when he hits it with a soccer ball. Tommy doesn't tell anyone about it right away, and it gets him into all kinds of trouble. Accidentally calling Zordon and beeping constantly in class, so it gets confiscated by Miss Appleby, and he has to get it back. That's my favorite Zordon moment. What is it, Zordon? You contacted me! That's like, put a paper bag over my head embarrassing. And the show flounders so hard for giving him a lesson to learn, but not so he'll lose too much of his coolness. It accidentally gives him the lamest character flaw ever, forgetfulness. Because Miss Appleby gives the students an assignment about self-improvement, we retroactively pretend like Tommy has always had this huge memory problem. That would be a good reason to deal with the fact that the Rangers spread themselves way too thin and maybe do a story about not overextending yourself. Like, maybe the reason he's forgetting stuff is because he's just too busy. But nope, it's just a personality quirk that wasn't there before and to my recollection, is never there again. 
There's plenty of potential in a lot of the basic building blocks for all six characters, but the show goes out of its way not to expound on them. And the actors bring as much to the material they can. They all play it totally straight and never wink at the camera. And Austin St. John in particular has a commanding presence and a sincerity that elevates and sells the material. There's even the occasional flash of humanity in Balkan Skull, who otherwise serve as the counterexample to the Ranger's responsibility and humility. In Wheel of Misfortune, Bulk breaks Kimberly's grandmother's prize spinning wheel, and when he sees how upset he's made her, he feels bad about it. He bullies as a defense mechanism so it doesn't last, but there's a residue of compassion there. And as time goes on, Bulk and Skull slowly try to become more heroic, for the wrong reasons at first, but then because helping people is its own reward. That begins with their creating their own superhero personas in Doomsday, trying to tout themselves up as just as heroic as the Rangers. They'll stick around longer than any of the Rangers through the Zordon era, and arguably have the most real character growth of anyone throughout the original series. It would have been interesting to see if that happened any faster had they gotten their own series, which very nearly happened. They even shot a pilot, I believe. The writers were maybe already thinking about that possibility during this first season. In Calamity Kimberly, Tommy says Bulk and Skull should get their own TV show. The character I most long to see some dimension for, or at least a more fleshed out history, is Zordon. He's nothing but a plot device to give the Rangers their powers and gadgets and to move them from one place to another. But we get just enough, he captures my imagination, and he's potentially the most fascinating figure in the show. I'll feel similarly about Lord Zed in the next season. Here's what we know. Zordon is trapped in a time warp, whatever that means, and can only communicate to the command center from wherever he is, but he can't physically interact with anything. He had a war with Rita eons ago, and she somehow did that to him. Back then, he led a band of warriors against her army, which I can only assume was the original team of Power Rangers. Because we see a flashback in Power Ranger Punks, where he's wearing a really cool ranger suit with a cape. In Zoo Ranger, that's footage of Zordon's counterpart, mysterious sage Barza, who is also severely crippled by his arch-nemesis, which Bandora, stripped of most of his magic power by her. Bandora is, of course, the basis for Rita Repulsa, and the reason the moon base says Bandora's palace, even though that's not her name. I like the idea that Zordon was the original Red Ranger in the 2017 movie, and thought that was an invention of that film, but it looks like maybe they got it from this, because that was sort of there from the beginning. Though there's no sense that Rita was ever a Power Ranger. But that's pretty much what we know. How did Zordon find the power? Did he develop the Morphin Grid? Are they called Zords because he's called Zordon, or is it the other way around? It's really interesting that Zordon continues to uphold his idealistic principles after suffering this nightmarish blow at the hands of evil. If he'd fought dirty and escalated the fight, perhaps he wouldn't be a disembodied head in a tube now. But he never wavers. It's too much to ask for this show to get into all that, but it establishes all these inherently fascinating ideas and then asks me to enjoy it on a completely superficial level. I guess that's where, as a kid, my imagination was supposed to take over on the playground. And boy, did it. Zordon constantly comes off like an idiot and a jerk, and it's hilarious. He doesn't call the rangers to tell them about emergencies as often as I remembered. Just as often, the rangers will see that something horrible's going down, and then go to the command center. Zordon says, I've been monitoring the situation. A lot. He knows what's happening, but he doesn't bother to tell his team until they ask him about it. 
I mean, there's not escalating a situation, and then there's just plain old negligence. You could make a drinking game out of Rangers teleport to the command center immediately, but when they get there, Zordon often gives them information he's been sitting on a while. I also don't know why he ever bothers to call the rangers before he teleports them, because sometimes he just materializes them into the command center without warning. I'm assuming he's watching them on the viewing globe and makes sure none of them are doing anything important right then, which would be an invasion of privacy, but no one's concerned about that in this show. But at least he wouldn't risk nudity or death in case one of them is taking a shower or driving on the freeway. And Zordon rarely gives useful advice. He doesn't really mentor so much as explain. In Green with Evil, Tommy damages the command center and the rangers lose contact with Zordon. It's played as a huge blow and it creates a sense of urgency. If we don't get Zordon back, we can't beat the Green Ranger. There's even kind of a concrete reason the rangers need him, though they don't know that. Zordon knows that destroying the Sword of Darkness will break Rita's spell, but I'm pretty sure even after Billy gets Zordon back, just by plugging the right thing into the other thing, Jason already somehow knows to destroy the sword without Zordon ever telling him about it, unless I missed something. He just doesn't do anything that Alpha can't. And yeah, Alpha is often incompetent, but he's more useful than a big head that knows stuff for no reason. Alpha could just as easily look at control panels and say, sensors tell me that's a giant fish monster. Ay 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 ay. How does Zordon know half the stuff he knows? Sometimes Rita goes after some ancient artifact or recruits a villain, like Scorpina or Lokar, that Zordon is familiar with. But Zordon always knows the name, power, and sometimes weakness of brand new monsters Finster or Rita creates. I mean, at least one time we see footage from inside the Moon Palace in the viewing globe. So I don't know why he's ever surprised by anything Rita does if he's spying on her all the time. Maybe he knows exactly what Rita's planning and the weaknesses of all her monsters, but just doesn't tell his team because he's got a screw loose. I'm not totally convinced Zordon isn't psychotic. He's been lost in another dimension for thousands of years with no one to talk to but a high-pitched robot with an anxiety disorder. Might make you a little loopy too. While we're on the subject, I have no idea what Zordon's predicament really is, and the show doesn't either. Is he fully manifesting inside the tube and that enclosure contains the dimension? Or part of the dimension he's in? Or is he only projecting his head, but his full body is actually in another dimension, still intact like in the 1995 movie, which isn't canon? In Green with Evil, it sounds like it's kind of both. When Alpha loses Zordon, he talks about communication, but also location. Whenever they get a beat on him, Zordon comes back in, but distorted, or more distorted than usual, and tries to tell Alpha what sector he's in, like he's been thrown to some other dimension from the one he was in before. I don't know how he knows that any more than I understand how he knows the names of monsters that were just invented. It's not like he's got a map, how does he know where he is? I'm hoping the Boom comics finally flesh all this out and make it consistent, which they haven't done yet. But I have no clue what's going on. Which is also true of Rita's schemes. All of them. I'll give her that she is trying a greater variety of plots than I remembered. It's not always just a make a monster and make it big plot, but that's usually at least a part of her plan. The big issue with her is that the Rangers have this ideological excuse to keep their conflict at a perpetual standstill, but there's nothing stopping her from doing the Ultra Zord thing, from firing everything. It would be really easy to put limits on her power, like we sort of have with the Rangers, but she seems to have unlimited energy. 
What is holding her back? And it's more glaring because the show seems to think it needs a story excuse for why the rangers can't just go blow her house down, but not for her. It's easier to throw my hands in the air and expect no logic at all if there was never any logic, as silly as it may be, but there is some, so I'm talking about this. Plus, it's funny. Rita has all this stuff just lying around she never uses until the producers decide to adapt Sentai footage and it watches like they haven't even watched all of Zoo Ranger before they make an episode. Like they have no idea what footage they have and they're just making it up episode to episode. There are powerful artifacts Rita can't use until she's found them, but she has all kinds of devastating spells she uses one at a time and that she never uses again when there's nothing stopping her. And all kinds of stuff like the green coin and the pseudo-morphers that turn putties into rangers that she waits forever to use while trying way more piddly plans that aren't large enough in scope to expect they'd work. And she uses some magical devices that contradict and are sometimes even more limited than her other devices, just because we haven't shot any Rita footage here yet, and we're beholden to whatever we either haven't used from the Sentai, or think we can get away with reusing without anyone noticing. Rita has the same inconsistent surveillance issues Zordon does. Sometimes she can see everything that's going on on Earth, and sometimes it's a big mystery to her. In the Green Candle, she suddenly decides to use this magic wax to deplete the Green Ranger's power, but she has to find them first. So she pulls out this magic map with a tiny version of her magic wand, and it pinpoints Tommy's location. But A, she's constantly monitoring the rangers with her telescope and getting ideas from whatever they happen to be doing in the juice bar for her schemes, and B, Tommy is in the juice bar! That's the first place she'd look! And she needs a magic map to locate him? She blots out the sun and green with evil because apparently the Megazord is solar-powered, which is already weird. I thought the power came from the coins and from Zordon. Are they solar-powered? At least it's an environmentally friendly ancient power. But why doesn't Rita make an eclipse every time the Megazord shows up? Sure, she's not going to attack the kids at home because that's too scary for the show, but she has the key to the command center the whole time. Why doesn't she use that before now? Does she even need a ranger connected to it? The rule as stated is, no one may enter without a power coin. She's got one! What is stopping her from bringing Goldar and the Snizzard and the Wrapping Pumpkin and Cyclopses and Scorpina and like 20,000 Super Putties and just going to town on the place? And why has she waited so long to find the perfect candidate to be green if she's controlling his every move anyway? Once again, I wonder how important prior martial arts skills are, or if the costume would already give Tommy everything he needs. And those five episodes are padded out by lots of testing. If Rita's whole plan revolves around the Green Ranger, wouldn't you put him through his paces before getting the ball rolling? Wouldn't it be smarter to have Tommy try to join the team and work as a spy to gain the Ranger's trust? And then what about Scorpina? If she's got access to these other Lords of Evil that will show up to help on a dime, why doesn't she call them all the time? Why does Scorpina show up for Green with Evil and then just move into the palace? If she does whatever Rita tells her, why wasn't she there already? What is the difference between her and Goldar and the disposable, single-use, biodegradable monsters? It's not that the throwaway monsters are all made of clay. Rita has like five different methods for developing monsters. Rita makes Goldar grow all the time, but he's never destroyed like other monsters. So why not only use Goldar-type monsters? Although it's not like there's anything stopping her from making them again. The giant horrifying face in the sky, Lokar, with his shape-changing monster, can come back after being blown up. So why does Rita wait for so many episodes before summoning them again? 
Why does Rita bother to keep using super putties after the rangers come up with a plot device weapon to beat them? They don't even use the super putty laser gun thing that disintegrates them on contact after that, but somehow they're just as easy to beat as regular putties every time the rangers fight them thereafter. Did she just stop making them indestructible because she thought it was pointless because they had that gun, but just thought putties with giant rock hands looked cool? She seems to decide her schemes based on her mood. Sometimes she feels like just irritating the rangers, and sometimes it's doomsday. But she still expects just being irritating to destroy them, and she always blames her minions when it doesn't work, even if they had nothing to do with the plan at all. Speaking of doomsday, that's my absolute favorite Rita scheme. I have no earthly idea what in the world she's doing. Green with evil is all over the place, but this is even crazier. She goes all out all of a sudden for no reason except this is supposed to be a big two-episode event. So Rita has Goldar beam all the citizens of Angel Grove to another dimension like he's Brainiac. Then she brings her moon palace to Earth, which we're told makes her way more powerful for some reason. The rangers fight Goldar's Zord Cyclopses. They beat him with the Ultra Zord, and then Rita buries Ultra Zord just by shooting a beam from her magic wand. Wow! Why don't you do that every time? Do you need your palace on Earth to do that? Were you not powerful enough before you did that? Fine, bring it there every time. It didn't look hard or anything. It's easier than taking a mobile home down the highway. So then, she just magically respawns Cyclopses, and she's got Lokar there for just for good measure. She can do anything. There's no reason she shouldn't be ruler of the entire universe already. Soon as she gets out of that dumpster, we are all screwed. So then, in the second part, we find out that the Zords aren't destroyed or lost, and there are several points where it looks like they're gone until we finally transform them into the Thunder Megazord in Season 2. They're just at half power. So, Jason decides to risk taking them in without full power, and Zordon says that's never been tried. And they're risking the Zords disappearing and losing the power forever by doing that. Well, that's just poor design, if you ask me. But then, it turns out there's an emergency protocol where the Megazord just disappears if it's in danger of being destroyed. Wait, what? So why didn't it do that before it was buried underground? And how were they in danger of losing the power forever if there's just this emergency beam out? Then, Alpha taps into the Fortress's computers, which he can do just because it's on Earth now, and gets information on Cyclopsis's weakness. So the rangers are able to destroy it, and then Rita just gives up. Like, the episode being almost over means she just doesn't have time to try anything else. Why can't she just magically bring Cyclopsis back again? Does she need a one-up mushroom or something? Why not just shoot beams from your magic wand? What is going on? This episode is the most like watching kids play with action figures thing I have ever seen, and I love it. It makes zilch for sense and it's not even trying, and it is easily the best episode of the whole season. Part of that is because it feels like a cool season finale, and it really should have been the last episode of the season. It's bookended with Power Rangers Day, a big thank you celebration in Angel Grove. That town has been through a lot in just a few months, and it's a wonder they can afford this festival considering all the property damage. I mean, does Rita even realize there's more world than Angel Grove? Does she think that's the only pocket of human civilization on the whole planet? It's fun that Power Ranger Day turns into Doomsday, and then back to Power Rangers Day. It's a fun encapsulation of the formula of the whole show. Yes, most episodes are pretty much structured the same way, but if you've seen Doomsday, you've really seen every episode, at least of the first season. It's got it all. It's the most epic and the most ridiculous, and because Jason has control of Tommy's toys, you even get the Mega Dragon Zord. 
Zordon also checks in with the Rangers at the end and gives them the option to give up being Power Rangers because they've done so much for the city. As if we've come to some kind of change in status quo just because we want a really epic fight. Zordon says they've dealt Rita a massive blow. Okay, not sure how Doomsday is ultimately any different than any other day. Does she somehow have less power now? Fewer resources? Did Lokar take Rita off speed dial and block her calls? And of course, they all decline that offer without another thought. And after the Rangers are sad not to see Tommy there in the first part, he shows up at the end, down that he's not part of the team anymore, but proud to support his friends. It would have been the perfect way to cap off the season. But then there's another 18 episodes, no real finale, and a return of the Green Ranger story that feels like it's the beginning of a new season, and is just big and preposterous enough to serve as a good follow-up to this. In that, Goldar uses the Ranger's parents against them to get their coins, and Zordon uses his power to re-energize Tommy's coins so he can get them back, which seems to make him more of a liability because he's so weak. He'd have been better off going in unmorphed. I'm not really sure what his powers even bring to that situation. Then, the Rangers use the power in their coins to re-energize Zordon, and now everyone's okay except Tommy's powers are low and going to be depleted eventually. I don't know why they couldn't use their coins to give his coin more energy, because they seemed like a perfect renewable energy source, but whatever. My point is, great episode to open a season, and it's perplexing why the first season feels like a season and a half. Sure, it's not a serialized, unfolding, Breaking Bad kind of narrative, but there are enough developments and changes in status quo, superficial though they may be, that it would have been appropriate to put more thought into how the season finishes. Finally, more favorite episodes. Besides Doomsday, Green Candle, and Return of a Friend, I also really like No Clowning Around. That's the first monster that transforms into a human, and he's pretty menacing and creepy for this show. The absurdity is 60s Batman level. The clown is called Pineapple, and then he turns into a giant pineapple monster, which strikes me as a more clever use of the Sentai than average. And there's even a little girl who gets turned into a two-dimensional cardboard cutout, and all Billy has to do to fix her is add water. I like Trick or Treat, which sounds like a Halloween-themed episode, but it's actually about Kimberly and Skull going on a monster-themed game show. You'd think with monsters attacking Angel Grove every week, that might not be the most popular game show on television, but it is, and it's also the most convoluted. It's basically Stump the Chump. You have to trick the host with questions he can't answer, and then there's Double Dare-style challenges, like climbing around on a big spider web. How hard is tricking this guy? Is he supposed to be a genius? You can ask him anything. So all you have to do is ask him the name of your great-great-grandfather or how many VHS tapes you own, and you should get pumpkin points every time. There's a big putty fight there where the putties have pumpkins on their heads, and the rangers have to deal with getting pumpkins on their heads, and they face the infamous pumpkin wrapper monster who has the worst rhymes ever. Everyone seems to be having a lot of fun with this one, and it's infectious. I mentioned Crystal of Nightmares with the collective dream of Zordon stripping the rangers of their powers. That's where we find out the rangers need self-confidence to morph, which is a really interesting idea, and the Balkan skull piloting a Megazord dream is hilarious. The pilot is also one of my favorites. It sets the tone for the whole show, includes the first giant Goldar fight, and establishes the Ranger Code, which is the basis for everything I think gives Power Rangers the potential to be a lot more than the sum of its parts. 
Some of my least favorite episodes include Food Fight, because I hate the pudgy pig monster, I hate gross-out humor, and because of that, I despise food fights. And of course, that had to be the one monster we brought back in a pig surprise, and I don't like that one either. And why does the monster have to be made from a real pig this time, when the first one didn't? Also, why does this one say actual words? Weird. Big Sisters has the most annoying little girl I've seen in anything. Island of Illusion is the first two-parter. The first multi-part episode is Green with Evil, which is five, and it's just too drawn out and dull. One by one, we have to watch the rangers face a pretty generic fear that makes them unsure of themselves and start to fade away, and then a really generic flashback sequence where they beat a monster in a previous episode to become solid again. It's really tedious. And that Quagmire guy is obnoxious and not much more of a helpful guide than Zordon is. And here are some of my favorite quotes. Finster in Different Drum. I'm working on a monster that eats cars and smells like a fish. I just love how super random that is and that we get to imagine it this time. He never makes that monster, which is surprising because he is all about fish, that guy. Ernie and Happy Birthday Zack referring to the Power Rangers. They're going to do for Angel Grove what Batman has done for Gotham City. Uh, so create a culture of escalation of madness? Rita talking to her minions in Dark Warrior. How many times have I told you not to drink from a bottle without a label? Rita again in the fourth part of Green with Evil. She's like Mojo Jojo with this. I love that my plan is working just like I knew it was going to. Billy in Life is a Masquerade. It's time for transmutational transformation. That's how he says it's morphin' time. I think he just doesn't get to say it's morphin' time very often. And finally, in Doomsday, Zordon looks at the pretty cheesy effect of Cyclopsis on the viewing globe and he says, It looks very bad indeed. I don't know how to rate a thing like this. I like to choose my score based on how well the piece is accomplishing what it sets out to do. Looking at it on its own terms, does it tell the best kind of story it can? Does it suspend my disbelief for the world it establishes? As I said, Power Rangers is almost immune to those sorts of standards. They're good toy commercials, they're gloriously bad as stories, and they're dripping with style. But they get more coherent and sophisticated as time goes on, so that at least becomes a priority. So within Power Rangers standards, I'm going to give it a 2.5 out of 4. Now please excuse me. I see in my viewing globe that trolls are spamming the comment section in one of my videos. It's Morphin' Time. Really hope you enjoyed it, everybody. That was a lot of Power Rangers binging in less than a week. Geekvolution and Superhero Rewind are partially funded by our audience, and we rely on you folks to keep up the content. If you like listening to Superhero Rewind and you want to hear episodes 24 hours before they're posted to the channel, become a patron at patreon.com slash geekvolution. Most of our perks are available for the minimum pledge. For just $2 a month, you'll get access to early videos and to our Patreon-exclusive, semi-monthly, uncensored talk show, Geekvolution After Dark. And at the next pledge goal, I'll review Guardians of the Galaxy. At the $10 tier or higher, you'll be credited as a patron producer. I'd like to thank all of our producers now. Dylan Mustiello, Jackson Rasco, Ryan Ludic, Nick Manna, Eamon Singleton, Cletus Winslow, Ethan, Todd Schmuck, Gui D., Joey Crouch, Caleb, Daniel Gibson, Malik Myers, Ian McKee, Jeffrey Patrone, and David Crabtree. Thanks so much to all of our other patrons as well, and thank you so much for tuning in to this episode. Age of Ultron is next, and I'll see you again soon. Bye.